The Bob Murphy Show, episode 209. you gonna do get ready for another episode of the bob murphy show the podcast promoting free markets free minds and grateful souls it's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a christian and economist now here's your host bob murphy hey everyone welcome to another episode of the bob murphy show today it's going to be me flying solo and I'm going to finally address the work of Curtis Yarvin, a.k.a. Mencius Moldbug, I believe is the pronunciation of his, what is that, a pseudonym, pen name? I'm not sure what that's called. Over the last, well, let's say at least year, perhaps longer, more and more people have been occasionally sending me essays written by Curtis Yarvin saying, hey, Bobby, you gotta check this guy out. And at least two people whom I know personally, have told me that they think he's one of the most, I don't remember the exact adjective, something like original or interesting political thinkers of our time, something like that. So let me just say, as the the episode title of this particular Bob Murphy show episode suggests, I I don't get it. Sorry, It's, it's not doing anything for me. So let me at least try to explain why. And up till now, the stuff that I have checked out. So just to be clear, it's not like I'm a, an expert in the work of Curtis Yarvin because just the stuff I've read, the people have sent me and said, hey, try this one. It just, I, I, don't, I don't see it. And so let me just acknowledge the obvious reason that that might be my initial reaction is I'm jealous, right? It's like, wait a minute. I wanted to be the most compelling, provocative, original thinker that, talking about political stuff. So why are you going? So there's that. So- you say, well, gee, Bob, can't you distinguish whether that is your motivation? Well, no, I can't because this is what it would feel like if actually it's just that I'm jealous. So I, I would convince myself that I have objective problems. Let me mention before I dive into the problems. And so what I'm doing in this episode is I finally got a few people sent me an essay he wrote called The Inflation Economy. And this came out on May 25th of 2021. And so this is one where this is my baby. This is my area. And so I feel quite qualified to go through and tell you folks why this isn't doing anything for me, okay? Whereas in some of the other stuff, like when he's talking about the founding fathers, you know, he's taking shots at Sam Adams or whatever. I I think Sam Adams could bench Curtis Yarvin, just my opinion. But that's that's where, but you know, I don't know what I'm talking about when it comes to American Revolution. I don't know too much more than the average Joe. So that I didn't really speak up. But now on this one, like I say, I want to go through and explain why I was not impressed with this, even though some people sent me this article, The Inflation Economy, thinking, okay, at long last, Bob, now you're going to see why we like this Curtis guy, right? And and I still don't see it. So before I go into the the problems I have with it, let me just say, Curtis is a clever guy. He's he, he has read a ton of stuff, obviously. He's got an interesting writing style. And what's crucial about him. And I think this largely explains the fascination with him and and the reason so many people are reading him as if he's a breath of fresh air is that he is original. Okay. So he's not part of some camp 
And it's not that, you know, he goes out and reads 15 people and then knows, okay, I got to make sure my own take on something falls within the area and the political opinion space that's, you know, circumscribed by these 15 people over here. And I got to be somewhere in between them. Otherwise, you know, I might get in trouble. So that's not what he's doing. He's an original thinker, just like, you know, people can wonder, oh, what's Bill Burr's take on this thing going to be? You know, and you don't know what the heck he's going to say. You got to wait till until he says it. Likewise with Curtis Yarvin, you know, he's a big enough name and independent enough that he can go ahead and just say, just shoot from the hip and say whatever he's thinking. So I'll give him that. And I understand why some people like that. And in particular, people who have been in the Austro-Libertarian camp for years and understandably feel like we're just spinning our wheels, guys. We're getting crushed. The left is taking over the world literally. And we're just sitting here talking about praxeology and the non-aggression principle. We got to do something. We need something new. And then this Curtis Yarvin guy comes along apparently offering, you know, the new diagnosis to say, here's how the traditional right has been failing. Here's how the world really works. And, you know, these are some steps people could take to make a difference. Okay, so I... I get how if you're frustrated with the existing coalitions that Curtis Yarvin is this, like I say, breath of fresh air and so on. All right. However, you could still be a breath of, well, you could be a different type of gas and not be fresh air. All right. To keep that metaphor going. So on this one, let me, I'm, I'm not sure the best way because I can't, the, either the strength or the weakness or both of Curtis Yarvin's essays is they're really long. And so it's going to be hard for me, if you haven't already read this thing, to excerpt it and, and distill it down so you can understand what his position is in order for me then to criticize it. Let me try it this way. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Before I get into the meat of this particular essay, let me also just mention, in case you don't know too much about this guy, Curtis Yarvin is very controversial, all right? And he's also, too, in terms of how do people know about Michael Malice, I think, did a lot in terms of amplifying Curtis Yarvin among Austro-Libertarians and like to shine a spotlight on him and to bring him to the attention of the Austro-Libertarian world. In particular, I believe Curtis Yarvin coined the term the cathedral that now has been, you know, Malice was using it now. It's been picked up by a lot of people. So that's partly to explain how, you know, he became a hot topic in certain circles and also he's very controversial and, you know, some of his critics who aren't too careful about the facts will accuse him of being anti-Semitic or, you know, racist, white supremacist, whatever. So I did read or skimmed at least one such piece and it was like, yeah, it, to me, it looked like Curtis Yarvin likes to be, quote, shocking and to say things in a trollish manner. Like, I can't give you a good example off the top of my head, but when he's trying to make a joke about something, it'll be sort of black humor and like, oh, this isn't the kind of joke that people at National Review would be willing to say, but I'm going to say it because I'm a bad boy, that kind of thing. And so it's like, oh, does he really believe that? Or is he just trying to shock us? So it's that kind of stuff. And then I think some of his critics take him seriously and that's what happens. So that's my take. But again, I haven't read enough stuff for all I know. Maybe he really does have certain views that would... I would find distasteful. I don't know. What I do know is Eric Weinstein, Brett's brother, that guy, he was on the Lix Friedman show 
and I'll link to the, it's not worth playing here now, but I'll, I'll link to it. And he, he used an analogy and, and said, because Friedman was asking him about Curtis Yarvin and Michael Malice. And so Eric said of Curtis Yarvin, he used the analogy to that poisonous delicacy that the fish that they serve in Japan, it's like, it's, it's very poisonous unless you prepare it just right. In which case it's a delicacy. And so he was saying that Curtis Yarvin was so toxic and he, and he understood, you know, Eric understood that some of his colleagues and friends liked Curtis Yarvin, but Eric himself was going to keep him at arm's length and he wasn't going to like, you know, distill his work down or, or quote him for his own audience because he was not the type of chef who felt comfortable preparing this toxic dish. He was afraid he would end up killing, you know, his own audience with it because he was not the chef who, who knew how to handle this toxic fish and prepare it in just the right way. All right. So that's the analogy he used. And I'm, I'm, again, I'm just saying this in case you don't know much about this guy, just to give you the, you know, Hey folks, just be careful, handle with caution. Some people said he's a bad man. So there you go. Okay. So now jumping into this, the big picture is Yarvin is arguing that the U.S. economy is dependent on inflation, just the, the way it is right now. And so, for example, Ron Paul saying, and the Fed, yeah, that's great, Dr. Paul, but our society would collapse right now if we were to do that, okay? Because you don't understand how much we're dependent on this. And moreover, we can't even measure it. And, and what Yarvin argues is, is you can't just look at stuff like, oh, how much did the monetary base increase over this such and such time period. And that's the way to measure how much inflation the Fed inflicted on us. And you can't just measure, you know, the, the drop in purchasing power of the dollar among a basket of consumer goods, that that's also not a great. And he goes through and, ex, and gives some, you know, decent explanations as to why any particular metric like that is going to miss stuff. And instead, what Yarvin recommends is that we look at the growth in personal net worth. So, you know, the aggregate amount of purchasing power that people have and the increase of that year to year is the way to gauge how much inflation there has been. And then if we have a, you know, an independent reason to suppose that the process by which that inflation occurs tends to benefit rich people and reduce the purchasing power of poorer people, then we get the result that our economy runs on the banks and the Fed and the whole financial system ripping poor people off in order to give, steal money from them and give it to the rich people. And that's kind of how our, our economy runs. And we and, and at least half of the U.S. economic system is basically just propped up by inflation. All right, so that's kind of his his take. So in order for me to demonstrate why I don't trust this guy, I don't mean like I wouldn't let him babysit my kids, even though it's also a true statement that I wouldn't let him babysit my kids. But when I say don't trust the meaning, like as a, as a writer is that again, on this particular issue, I know this stuff very well and I caught him making mistakes. And so I'll document two of them here. So he's talking about um, Mises. So let me go ahead and see if I can find this. Okay. So the context here is Yarvin is trying to build up step-by-step step this hypothetical Bitcoin economy in order to then show 
how inflation could occur and how the power brokers could be ripping people off through inflation. And so at first he says, okay, suppose it's a pure Bitcoin economy and you know, it's the blockchain, blah, blah, blah. But then suppose that Satoshi had a way that he could print up not new Bitcoins, but claims to Bitcoins and he could issue those at will. Like, you know, in other words, there wasn't a 21 million cap on those claims and that people treated the claims as interchangeable with the actual Bitcoins. And then further, that Satoshi could just go around and start making promises about what he might do, and that would give him purchasing power, or that could prop up certain things. And so notice how he could go around bestowing gifts or favors on people with this power that he has, and you couldn't even measure it, right? So that's the direction that Curtis is taking this. I'm going to probably be going interchangeable between Curtis and Yarvin here in this just because, All right? So along the way, and he, he's obviously read a bunch of Mises, All right? So that's the other way I said, I understand why Austro-Libertarians like this guy because he gives the appearance of having read all of their stuff and digested it. And then he's read all oh, so much more, you know, Bob Murphy doesn't know anything about Roman history, but Curtis Yarvin does. And so that's why it's more fun to read Curtis than Murphy because Curtis knows all the Mises stuff on the theory of money and credit, and he knows about crossing the Rubicon, right? Okay, so here's the problem, though, is that, like I say, when Curtis just makes offhand remarks about certain things, he, he's, he's bluffing. So here he says, again, the context of Satoshi first creates Bitcoin, then he starts making claims on Bitcoins that are like beyond the blockchain and, and hence not subject to the $21 million cap and the other, you know, protocols that allegedly ensure scarcity. And so Curtis says, as an aside here, Mises called securities a, quote, money substitute. A Bitcoin substitute should not expand the Bitcoin supply for two reasons. One, it is an imperfect coin due to its maturity, risk, or both. And any token that isn't just a time-locked Bitcoin has non-zero risk. Two, an imperfect coin may be valuable, but it is both non-fungible and unspendable. And so he's going through. Okay, so... Here, in the, again, if, if you haven't read this, this isn't going to mean much to you. I'm kind of just doing this just for those who have read this essay. And I'm just telling you, if you didn't know any better, you would think here that something that is a claim on an actual money, but that it's got a maturity and there's a risk of non-redemption, right? So it's a, it's a claim maybe that's not valid until a month later. And there's a chance that you know, the party that issued it isn't actually going to come through with it, that that's still a money substitute because, hey, Mises called securities a money substitute. It, it, no, that's that's not true at all, okay? A money substitute means it is something, it is a claim on the, the, the actual money, money in the narrower sense, that is redeemable at par and it's immediate, right? So there's no delay and there's no doubt about its, redeemability, right? Everybody is sure that like a bank that it issues a bank note that says the person who presents this at any of our branches will get a $20 gold coin uh, upon demand. People in a community have to know that that's the bank's good for that. If there's doubt that the bank's going to actually redeem it, then it's no longer a money substitute in the Misesian framework. All right. So here it's like, you can tell me Yarvin must have read at least large portions of the theory of money and credit, or at least human action. And probably I wouldn't be surprised if he did read portions of theory of money and credit. And so he knows that Mises did use his term money substitute. And he knows it has to do with claims on money. And he knows redeemability 
and, um, you know, not having to wait for it and some of our important issues. But when he tries to then step back and tell us this is what Mises said and what he meant by this term, he's, he's just wrong. And it's, it's not like a, like he said, oh, Mises was born in this year and actually he was off by her. It's not a, a trivial little thing. This has to do with what Yarvin's building up here, right? His whole, his whole edifice. So it's an important mistake. Okay. Another example that will, more of you will understand once I explain what it is, whereas this, this thing's kind of inside baseball, the one I just did is, uh, let me find it here. Okay. So here I'm reading from Curtis. A security is the general case of debt. This inflate, well, again, it's hard to just jump in the middle of this because he's talking about stuff that he's been building up. So here, this excerpt's not going to mean too much to you. He's talking about how he's in his thought experiment, he's built up an inflation machine. All right. And so here we go again. A security is the general case of debt. This inflation machine is a machine for infinite debt. Few appreciate the fact that stock outstanding is a liability on the balance sheet, just like debt. When its stock goes up, a company is expected to kick out more money. The only difference is that its earnings are a prediction, not a promise. All right, let me read that again. So again, what Curtis is trying to do here is he's he's leading up to his own preferred metric of inflation, which is to say his personal net worth in the aggregate goes up. That's what he's defining as inflation. Or at least he's saying that's the measurement to sh- for us to know how much inflation has occurred. So if in, if in a given year, personal net worth in the area goes up by $3 trillion among Americans, let's say, then occurs there's been $3 trillion worth of inflation because now Americans collectively could spend, could go out and buy, has had the purchasing power of $3 trillion more than they did last year. And so that's in his mind, the only sensible way to try to quantify how much inflation there's been. Okay. And so he's saying here that when the value of a company goes up, when it's, you know, market cap, so the price per share times the number of shares goes up, it's important, you know, for in Curtis's framework for that to somehow correspond to, oh, now more people are owed something. Okay. So that's why, what he wants to do with it. So again, let me just reread this paragraph. And then I'll explain why it contains a pretty basic mistake. So again, here's the paragraph. A security is the general case of debt. This inflation machine is a machine for infinite debt. Few appreciate the fact that stock outstanding is a liability on the balance sheet, just like debt. When its stock goes up, a company is expected to kick out more money. The only difference is that its earnings are a prediction, not a promise. Okay? So... This is just totally wrong. I understand what he's getting at, right? He's trying to say, oh, if people think that a, st- a company is going to be more profitable and it's going to end up having more dividends to the shareholders, that's going to push up the stock price. Just like if a company were to issue more debt, so the market value of its outstanding IOUs, you know, the corporate bonds goes up, there's more people in the community who expect more cash coming from the corporation into their hands over the next 10 years. So he's trying to say, when the market value of this company goes up, I don't care whether they've issued more debt and now they have more money to spend on factories or whether just people predict their product's going to sell more down the road. And so even though they didn't issue more debt, that's the reason, you know, the market value went up. It's not that they took in more cash right now to buy factories. Either way, the increase in the stock price has to somehow tie to the company now owes people more money. So I'll read it one last time. A security is the general case of debt. 
this inflation machine is a machine for infinite debt. Few appreciate the fact that stock outstanding is a liability on the balance sheet, just like debt. When its stock goes up, a company is expected to kick out more money. The only difference is that its earnings are a prediction, not a promise, right? As opposed to like corporate debt, where that is a promise, we're going to pay you more. Okay, so again, this is just wrong, all right? No, stock outstanding is not a liability on the balance sheet. In a standard T account, you know, double entry bookkeeping, on the left-hand side, you've got the assets. And on the right-hand side, you've got liabilities plus shareholder equity, okay? So no, it's not a liability. By definition, like this is basic accounting. That's why debt and equity are different things. The stock is the residual after you pay off your liabilities, whatever's left over, if anything, that's the equity that the shareholders own. Okay, so I'm trying to come up with an analogy. It's like him, it, it, that's why it's funny when he says few appreciate the fact. The reason few people appreciate it is because it's wrong. So that's why few people would say this, Curtis. It's because it's a false statement. It's, I mean, I'm trying to come up with it. Truly, this would be like somebody saying, few appreciate the fact that whales are fish, just like salmon. After all, they both swim in the water. The only difference is whales breathe air through lungs and salmon breathe water through their gills. Okay, that's something, you know. <laughs> okay, so in case you don't like, no, a whale is a mammal, right? Okay, so I hope you can understand why that would be goofy if you read someone saying, few appreciate the fact that whales are fish, just like salmon. They both swim in the water or in the ocean. The only difference is whales breathe air and salmon breathe water right? That would be a goofy thing to say. And I'm saying that's analogous to Curtis Yarvin saying, you appreciate the fact that stock outstanding is a liability in the balance sheet, just like debt. The only difference is that earnings are a prediction, not a promise. That's, that's goofy. Okay. So yeah, he understands some of the mechanics of it, just like my hypothetical person talking about whales being fish and saying how they breathe and whatever. That's, yeah, he's got a lot of true statements thrown in there. But his basic takeaway is goofy and it's hilarious that he's lecturing people and chiding them on, you know, why don't more people recognize this fact when no, it's not a fact. It's just not how it works. Okay. So that's the kind of thing I mean where this essay, there's two things there where he's confidently and smugly telling people something, showing how smart he is and how cosmopolitan and wow, this guy knows everything. And no, he's making basic mistakes like that. So it wouldn't surprise me in other essays where I don't know everything very well and he's just throwing stuff off there about, oh, and here's what happened with Sam Adams, and here's what happened with Paul Revere's famous ride, and here's what it, it wouldn't surprise me if he's getting some real basic things wrong. Because, like I said, I've caught him doing it and things that I know well. Hey, folks, let's take a break from the discussion to talk about the resumption of the school year that for most of you is going to be starting in a little bit here, especially if you're homeschooling, but perhaps also in some other venues as well. This would work. I want to make sure you're aware of my textbook called Lessons for the Young Economist. So this was something I wrote a few years ago, published by the Mises Institute. It's, I think, ideally geared towards students who are seventh through 10th grades, let's say, but it also, adults could read it as well and younger students if they're precocious. And it's an introductory 
textbook that explains basic economics, covering things like free trade, drug prohibition, basic accounting principles, how does money work, why do we have money, how do banks work, things like that, what's wrong with price controls. And uh, I think, especially like I say, if you're a homeschooling parent in particular, you should go ahead and check it out. So go to bobmurphyshow.com slash young to see the link for my textbook, Lessons for the Young Economist. It's available in free PDF form for the Mises and so you can directly download it or you can pretty inexpensively order a physical copy of the book, which I think you probably will want to do, but go ahead and first peruse it in the PDF version. And then if you're a parent and your child is reading the book, what you're going to want to do is look at the teacher's manual as well. And so just go to bobmurphyshow.com slash young. That'll take you to the Mises Institute's page for Lessons for the Economist. And then you'll see right there on the left side, there's a link that says, you know, click here for the teacher's manual or the teacher's edition, something like that. And then likewise, you go there, you can get the free PDF version of the book that I wrote for the teacher whose students are using Lessons for the Economist as a textbook. You know, it has further explanation of the topics, different ways you might try to motivate the material, quizzes, things like that. So again, if you're interested, bobmurphyshow.com slash young. Okay, having said all that, let's get to the heart of this. It's not true that an increase in aggregate net worth corresponds to inflation. So what is true is if the central bank and the banking system as a whole are engaged in inflation, monetary inflation, then that would, other things equal, tend to push up net worth measured in nominal dollars. Let's just use dollars to keep things easy for American listeners and me, right? So that's true, but the, the, the reverse is not true. It's not true that in general, when you see net worth go up measured in dollars, that means there must have been that much inflation. That's certainly not a helpful way to think about it. And it's certainly not true to say, if we imagine a hypothetical free society with hard money where there wasn't any monetary inflation, not just in the sense of creation of new units of money, but the other types of sources of inflation that Curtis identifies in his essay that can't be merely quantified by enumerating how many actual units of the base money there are, that if we had a world like that with no inflation, therefore there wouldn't be an increase in net worth from year to year. That, that's not true. All right, so I'm, I was trying to think of, you know, what's the, what's the best way to illustrate this? So maybe, let's try it this way. I'll read something here. I'll read two paragraphs from Curtis and then step back and try to explain why what he's getting at here is just wrong. In plain English, the Fed can make the stock market go up and the housing market and even the crypto market without literally creating dollars. So there is no way to measure monetary dilution, the amount of dollar purchasing power the Fed creates. And in the global dollar economy we have today, the value of global dollar assets is about 100 times the number of global dollars. This was not done by, quote, printing dollars. It was done by giving away free options, and such options cannot even be priced. All right? And so here, um, the kind of thing he's getting at, again, it's, it's tough to distill this down without you just reading this humongous essay. And then, by the way, this was one thing that I, I thought was interesting that he, that he said and I, I had never thought about. He was saying there's no way to even quantify the value that 
Alan Greenspan, for example, gave to rich Wall Street fat cats with the so-called Greenspan put. Okay, so in the late 90s, after, well, there was the 87 stock market crash, Greenspan opened the floodgates, and then it somehow, and I don't remember the exact timeline, there, there were some financial crises in the 90s, but at some point, there was what came to be known as the Greenspan put. And what that meant was people thought if the stock market ever really started crashing hard, Alan Greenspan, the chair of the Federal Reserve at the time, would step in and stop it. You know, he would do what he had to do, like they bailed out long-term capital management or, you know, arranged for a bailout or whatever. I don't remember the exact detail. But there is this idea, and there's this thing called the plunge protection team, if you know that term. But the idea was that Greenspan would not just sit back at the helm of the Fed and let the stock market crater. And so they called it the Greenspan put because what's a put option? So what a put does is it gives you the option, but not the obligation to sell an underlying asset at a particular price. So if you bought Acme stock, let's say right now it's trading at 100, and then you buy some put options on it to give you the right to sell it at 90, that's sort of like an insurance clause, right? So you don't have to sell it, right? If Obviously, if Acme is still trading at 100 or 110 or whatever, you wouldn't exercise your option and sell it at 90. But what if it crashes? And so right now, oh my gosh, it loses half of its value in a week because whatever, there's a class action lawsuit that comes out against Acme or something. So right now the market price is $50 a share. Well, now you've got these puts though, and you have the ability to sell 10 of your shares at $90 each. So you'd go ahead and exercise those puts and sell 10 of your shares at 90, even though right now the market price is 50. Okay, so it's it puts a floor under your assets. So their price to you doesn't drop below that because you just exercise the put option if you had to. Okay, so when they say Greenspan was giving everybody in the stock market a put, what they meant was, oh, if the Dow Jones Industrial Average ever dropped below such and such, Greenspan would open up the monetary spigots and he would start buying assets and that would push up the stock market until the Dow was trading above blah, blah, blah. Right, so he was putting a floor that traders knew, yeah, the Dow Jones Industrial Average or the S&P 500 or whatever is never going to get below that because Greenspan wouldn't just stand idly by and watch that happen, right? So that's what the Greenspan put was. And so what Curtis Yarvin is saying, and again, this is what I thought, oh yeah, that's a good point, Curtis. I, I get what you're saying. Is once that became known, once that was common knowledge, surely that helps the fat cats on Wall Street, right? To know that, certain assets that they specialize in, right? There wasn't a Greenspan put on used Ford trucks that might help, you know, the average Joe. No, there was a Greenspan put on certain financial assets. And so surely that helped them, at least in a narrow sense. But especially if the market never actually tanks and Alan Greenspan doesn't have to exercise his promise, you know, doesn't actually have to pull the trigger and go ahead and bail out the market. Well, then how would you measure the value that he just gave to his buddies? And, you know, and so Curtis is saying, and you really can't. All right. So that's what he's getting at. And it's, by the way, just as an aside, it's interesting if you wanted to think through the implications of that, like how would that actually manifest itself? So it's, you know, like just just imagine a stock that you know you buy at a hundred and it's got you've got certain expectations about 
the probability that it's going to go down a certain amount or the probability is going to go up a certain amount. And then what if the central bank just comes in and says, oh, going forward, if this stock ever gets below 80, we'll just commit ourselves to buying unlimited amount of shares at $80 per share, you know, up to we'll, we'll buy up the entire outstanding stock of the company if we had to. So then that means the market price of that thing would never go below 80 because why would anyone sell for less than 80 if the Fed's standing there saying, we'll, we'll always buy this stock at 80 per share if need be. Okay, so that puts a floor under it. So now the stock would, you know, there'd be a new equilibrium and it's just interesting to think through, you know, how that works. And so the, the expected rate of return once the dust settles of getting into that stock can't be higher than other assets. And in fact, I would, it would be lower the expected rate of return, right? Because it's now, it's safer, right? Other things equal, if a certain asset is safer than another one, then the, the expected rate of return on it is lower. And so that would, you know, bid up the price of that stock such that when you're making a forecast about how much do I think I'm going to earn on this thing per year on an annualized basis over the next 30 years or whatever, now those returns have shrunk. And the way you see that is because the present price is higher than it otherwise would have been. So that means the implicit rate of return going forward is lower for a given expectation of what the actual market price will be down the road. All right. So that's the way you, you think about that. So the where the gain comes in is in the initial announcement. Once, if that was a surprise, once the market readjusts to the new information, now that they know, oh, the Fed just put an $80 floor into this particular stock, from that point forward, anyone who buys into that stock is not getting a bargain because it's already been fully priced in. They're getting a lower expected rate of return on it in exchange for less volatility, right? Just like if you, you, know, if you go buy a corporate bond you're not getting a special gift because all oh, the, the company promises to pay me first rather than the shareholders because Curtis corporate debt and equity are different things. They're not both liabilities on the balance sheet. Right. And so, but you wouldn't argue that, ah, so that means bondholders are a privileged class and stockholders are suckers. It's just, well, no, they, these assets have different characteristics. Okay. So anyway, I just went off on a tangent there, but just cause it was neat to think through the implications of how that works. Okay. So, there is a, a boon, by the way. It's like I say, it's the people who happen to be owning, who happen to own the stock the moment the Fed made the announcement about the $80 floor, assuming nobody saw that coming. Because then, yeah, the stock price would immediately rise, even if it was originally above that, right? So if the stock were originally trading at 100 and then the Fed announces, by the way, we will never let this stock drop below 80, you would there would be a one-time immediate shift from the price of you know, 100 up to whatever, 112 or something reflecting the fact that, oh, now this thing has lower volatility and needs to have thus a lower implied or expected rate of return. And the only way to make that happen, given that the profitability of the company hasn't changed just because of the Fed's announcement, is that the current price has to jump up. So that would be a one-shot one immediate windfall capital gain, net income, if you will, to the existing owners. And that would be the gift that the Fed's announcement would make. And then from that point forward, it wouldn't be a gift. And so somebody who bought into the stock down the road and then got the, the bailout, you know, the put exercise if the stock happened to fall, they wouldn't be benefiting so much from it, right? Just like, um, you know, when you're buying, if you buy fire insurance and then your house burns down, it's not 
that you're, you know, benefiting more from the insurance company than somebody whose house doesn't burn down, right? Okay, so back again to Curtis's essay. Now that I give you more of the context, let me reread those two paragraphs. In plain English, the Fed can make the stock market go up in the housing market and even the crypto market without literally creating dollars. So there is no way to measure monetary dilution, the amount of dollar purchasing power the Fed creates. And in the global dollar economy we have today, the value of global dollar assets is about 100 times the number of global dollars. This was not done by printing dollars. It was done by giving away free options and such options cannot even be priced. Okay, so again, just think back to our example. When the Fed says, if this stock goes below 80, we, we promise we'll come in and start buying it and prop it up. Even before the Fed does anything, just the mere fact of making that announcement, so long as it's credible, means the stock jumped in my numbers from 100 up to 112, I think I said. So Curtis wants to say, they just made the Fed's mere announcement just made that stock price go up 12%. And so now someone who owns that a share of that stock, his personal net worth just went up by $12 if he just owned one share, all right? Because before he owned a share of stock, it was at 100, now it went up to 112. And it's not that somebody else's wealth just went down by $12, right? So there's $12 more in aggregate net wealth. And this person, if he wanted to go buy tuna fish, he could sell his share of stock. And now he has $112 with which to go buy tuna fish if he wants. Okay, so this guy's walking around town thinking he's $12 wealthier. He's spending more money. He's doing, even though he doesn't have literally more dollars in his possession, he's got more wealth to throw around to sort of back him up. Okay, so that's where Curtis is coming from. So more generally, if the Fed puts a floor under the stock market, all the stock prices go up, even if the Fed hasn't actually created more base money. So even if, you know, the monetary base or the Fed's balance sheet doesn't change, the mere fact that Greenspan gets everyone to believe he's now implemented the Greenspan put is going to raise the value of the stock market. So all the people who own stocks now have a higher net worth and so on and so forth. And so that's monetary dilution in the sense that some other poor schlub who own, who doesn't own stocks and he just has, you know, some cash in his checking account balance and, you know, whatever, a retirement that's promised to him. And that's not in money that changes. Like it's just, you know, denominated in dollars and so on. Now stuff gets more expensive because all these Wall Street fat cats just saw their wealth go up, but this guy doesn't have more dollars he doesn't have more purchasing power. Just everything from his perspective just got more expensive, even though Greenspan didn't create more actual dollars. He just made an announcement, right? So this is, again, where Curtis is coming from. Let me circle back yet again and read this two paragraphs yet again. And now I think I'm prepared to explain what's wrong with it. In plain English, the Fed can make the stock market go up in the housing market and even the crypto market without literally creating dollars. So there's no way to measure monetary dilution, the amount of dollar purchasing power the Fed creates. And in the global dollar economy we have today, the value of global dollar assets is about 100 times the number of global dollars. This was not done by, quote, printing dollars. It was done by giving away free options. And such options cannot even be priced. Okay, so now that I've given you in successive waves more of the context here, and I kept rereading those two paragraphs, you see where Yarvin's coming from. So he clearly wants you to think something is screwy with the fact that if you measure assets, dollar assets even, then that wealth is a hundred times the number of actual dollars. 
And so he's saying, okay, this isn't about printing money. And clearly there must've been a bunch of this inflation that Yarvin wants to identify that occurred for this to happen. And it was done by giving away free options and such options can't even be priced. Okay. So that's where it comes. So I wanted to say that, no, this is just, that's not the right way to think about it. All right. So again, let's go back to a, a hypothetical free society with hard money and would we expect in such a world where there hadn't been this dubious type of inflation that Yarvin's warning us about, would it be the case that the assets would be just worth how many units of money there were? And the answer is obviously no. All right, let, let's, let's imagine a free society where everyone's using gold as the money, right? Ounces of gold, and there's not going to be any more gold that's mined. Okay, so there's a million ounces of gold in circulation, you know, gold coins, there's a million gold coins in circulation. And then we want to stop at this at a given moment and say, hey, what's the, what's the net worth of all the people in this society? Would it be exactly equal to 1 million ounces of gold? Well, no, because the 1 million ounces of gold are themselves an asset. Any particular ounce of gold, any particular coin, gold coin, is in somebody's cash balance, right? So each of those coins is owned by one or more people. Like if it's people who, you know, form a company, then the company owns it, then they collectively own it and so forth, all right? So when people are figuring out their net worth, any gold coins they happen to possess is clearly going to go into it. So the wealth of the community is at least a million gold coins because the gold coins themselves get counted. And now what? As Kurt is saying, that's it? No other wealth should be counted whatsoever. And so if we had two communities side by side, they both have a million ounces in gold coins, but the community on the left has rocket ships and silos filled with wheat and all kinds of arable farmland and a whole fleet of trucks and cars and telescopes and uh, coal mines and huge deposits of oil and wells that are pumping millions of barrels of oil per week and so forth, and railroads, and all sorts of you know, heavy locomotives that are all over the place, and 16,000 factories that make different types of things, stockpiles of shovels, and um, snow plows, and things in the areas where there's winter, and the society on the right just has a million gold coins. We have to say that in both societies, the aggregate net worth computed as correctly as possible should be a million gold coins. No, that doesn't make any sense crazy. Of course, the community on the left has a much higher net worth. And if you had any particular business enterprise and you ask what's this business enterprise's shareholder equity, you know, the assets minus the liabilities, you'd come up with some number. And then if you went around and did that for everybody and added it all up and put it together, that would give you a rough approximation. And all those things I listed, those assets quoted in the money of the community in gold ounces, you could, they'd enter the asset side of their balance sheet like that and you'd add it all up. And so, yes, if somebody borrowed 10 gold ounces from somebody, you wouldn't want that to increase the aggregate net worth of the community, right? Because the one person's debt or the one person's asset, you know, this guy says, oh, I got an IOU from Jim. He owes me 10 gold ounces. So let's say that's Frank. Frank lent Jim 10 gold ounces. So now Frank is walking around with an IOU from Jim saying Jim owes me 10 gold ounces next year. Well, 11 because there's 1% or 10% interest. But right now the market value of that IOU is 10 gold ounces. So Frank's net worth is 10 gold ounces higher because he, he holds that IOU. But that doesn't make the community 10 gold ounces richer because 
was it Jim? I forgot. <laughs> Hopefully he signed his name on the bottom of the because I forgot the guy's name. I think it was Jim who borrowed the 10 gold ounces. He now has a debt, right? So until he spends it, Jim has the actual 10 gold coins that he borrowed. So his net worth is, goes up because of that. But oh, but he's got the debt, the li- liability that offsets it. So Jim's net worth is not 10 gold ounces higher just because he borrowed money because he's got the debt now on his own personal balance sheet that's offsetting it, all right? And so the aggregate net worth of the community does not change just because one guy borrows 10 gold ounces from somebody else. However, if somebody builds a wheat silo that has a market price of 10 gold ounces when all is said and done and he doesn't use up, you know, and we've, we're accounting for, you know, the resources that were consumed in, in its construction. And so just going from the original state to now the new state and just let's have the wheat silo exists. And that's the only major change here. And that thing has a market price of 10 gold ounces. And that's in somebody's possession. That guy's net worth is 10 gold ounces higher because he owns that wheat silo. There's no corresponding person in the community who's 10 gold ounces poorer because that thing exists. So that one person's addition does not subtract from somebody else. And so there is a legitimate sense in which the community is wealthier because of the existence of that wheat silo. Okay, so now there, there, there is a problem if you try to aggregate too much. You know, and Mises talks about this, that it does make sense to say, you know, what's this individual or like, what's this company's net worth? And you, you could imagine in principle, the company selling off all its assets, paying off all of its liabilities, and then whatever's left over is the shareholder equity. And that's the net worth or the capital of that business. But does it make sense to say what's the capital or the net worth of the United States as a whole or a planet Earth? Well, you could go ahead and do that calculation, but there is a point at which it becomes a little nonsensical. And Mises talks about this, like I say, because who are you going to sell it to? If all the Americans tried to sell all their assets in order to then pay off all their debtors and then see what's left over, that would crash asset prices because it's not like the country as a whole is going to collectively sell everything. Where are they selling it to? Okay, and certainly you can't have planet Earth sell everything because it's not like there's a bunch of Martians who are going to buy all the assets on Earth, right? So at some point, the accounting that you use breaks down a little bit when you aggregate too much. But still, the problem is not because of what Curtis Yarvin said. It's not because, well, gee, there's only a certain amount of dollars. It doesn't make any sense to say the aggregate value of dollar assets is 100 times that. That must have been due to the central bank or something. No, I've just shown you why one community could have total assets quoted in their money that is a huge multiple of the number of money units and another poor society, its net worth calculated in terms of its own money units would be a much smaller multiple of the number of its money units, right? And it's not because there were, oh, there was more inflation in the first one. No, it's because the first people are richer, wealthier. They have more wealth, that's why. Also, let me just mention, Wealth here is not merely physical stuff. Expectations do play a part in this. And that's unavoidable. Just like um, you want to be able to say, if you didn't take expectations into account when you were trying to calculate wealth, then you would be forced to say that an egg is more valuable than a chicken, right? Or pushing it even further, you'd have to say a plate of scrambled eggs should have a higher market value than a dozen eggs, you know, actually in the egg, 
you know, raw eggs that are still in the carton. If you weren't going to take into account expectations and your guesses as to how the future will unfold, in case you're missing my point, because to say a dozen eggs might have a higher market value than, you know, a plate of already cooked scrambled eggs, it's because you can turn those dozen eggs. But by the way, now that I'm talking about it, I'm realizing it actually might not be true. Let's say 10 dozen eggs, just to make sure I'm, I'm covered. 10 dozen eggs, you know, raw ones in the carton have a higher market value than a plate of two scrambled eggs. They're cooked and ready to eat. But why is that? It's because you know how the world works and in normal circumstances, people realize, oh, you know how many future plates of scrambled eggs I could make with these things, with certain other inputs? And so that's why. And that's also why a chicken has a higher market value than an egg, even though in a direct sense, an egg is more useful to a human than a, than a live chicken is. You have to know what to do with the chicken. All right. Um, so the, there's, you know, examples before people knew how to use crude oil to distill or to refine it and make gasoline and kerosene and all that kind of stuff. Oil was a nuisance, right? Somebody in the year 1600, if they were out and saw this black stuff oozing out of the ground, they'd be like, oh, watch out, folks. What the heck is that? Ugh, feel bad for the guy who owns this land. There's this gooey black stuff that's leaking all over. But of course, in the year 1930, then you know, you're Beverly Hillbillies if you find that on your property. That's great. All right. So it's not because the physical characteristics are different, it's because our knowledge of what we can do with that changes. And so it becomes more valuable, measured in terms of market value. And so there's nothing weird about that. It's not because there was the inflation machine pumping up the value of the land. It's because people's expectations. And you know, there's a, some, somebody has a great idea and realizes, you know, the, um, I forget the guy's name, the guy who figured out how to make the containers for cargo ships, right? So it used to be when they would, you know, when, when big merchant vessels would take goods from China, you know, into New York City or into, uh, you know, on the West Coast, into the harbor there, port, and then there'd be 18 wheelers backed up and it would take a long time to unload the, you know, they'd send guys with forklifts or whatever onto the ship and they'd lift the stuff and they'd take it out in crates or whatever and then unpack it and then they have to repack it to put it into the 18-wheeler. And some guy, I forget his name, was just sitting there one time thinking, there's got to be a better way to do this. And then he came up with the idea of standardized shipping containers, right? So those big, the long rectangular things with their three-dimensional, you know, that are at the back of Optimus Prime as he's driving around. If you've ever seen, you know, those are just stacked on cargo ships now that go to sea. And so it's real simple. You know, they get packed over in China or whatever, and then they come over here and then there's just cranes that come and pick them up and drop them off. And then the 18 wheeler, you know, the, the cab backs up and they connect. That's the sound it makes. And then they drive off. So it's way faster. And that revolutionized international trade brought down, you know, prices for, for shipping stuff across the ocean. All right, so just that guy having that idea all of a sudden made humanity much wealthier and increased the value of certain, you know, manufacturing operations in India and China because now all of a sudden humans figured out a way to get those products to the wealthy consumers in the Western nations. All right, so it wasn't that there was a physical change. It was just, oh, the guy had an idea and now all of a sudden we're wealthier. And so... Yes, even without central banks, even in a pure free society with hard money, 
once that guy has that idea and the stuff ramifies through, you would expect the stock market, you would expect the value of certain real estate to go up because humanity in a very legitimate sense is now wealthier because of this guy's idea. All right? And that's, there's nothing weird about that. There's nothing dubious or, oh, that's diluted the value of the dollar because of the inflation machine. No, not at all. Okay, last thing I'll mention here is Yarvin to be provocative. Let me see if I can find an example. Right. So here Yarvin says, the Fed itself has a pretty good handle on this data series and it's, it's graphing, I think, personal net worth. And so Yarvin says, this is a graph of how much money the government has secretly given away to the rich. Since 1950, American personal net worth and portfolio dollars has gone up by about 100 times. And he says, according to normalized accounting, if every portfolio dollar gave the exact same return, da 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 Okay, but of course, newly minted portfolio dollars are hardly distributed evenly. The best, the best returns go to the richest, most sophisticated investors, while a mere checking account pays nothing at all. In general, the oldest, slowest moving dollars and the biggest hordes of the most fecund cash on the street or near the street is universally sterile. It's not even in a basic index fund, let alone levered up like Harvard on asset. This is why it is accurate, if incendiary, to describe monetary dilution as the rich stealing from the poor. Effectively, the high-velocity dollars of the poor are taxed to subsidize the low-velocity dollars of the rich. Here we go. And then later he says, even before COVID, keeping the American rich in the style to which they are accustomed was costing the Fed somewhere around $10 trillion a year. In 2019, for instance, personal net worth rose from $105 trillion to $118 trillion. The gray vertical bars in the Fred graph that he had are recessions in which our inflation engine somehow throws a rod and peters out or even goes into reverse. Da, 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 da. Okay. So you get how he's being provocative there or anything, but part of my issue is he's making it sound like the increase in aggregate net worth is just going to rich people. And in general, no, that's not true. So yes, it's true that the Fed's inflation is primarily benefiting rich people. I'll give him that. But it's not true that, oh, yeah, when personal net worth goes up, that's basically just all rich people getting richer and poor people getting poor. No, it's not true. And I think it's harmful to perpetuate that idea that when even just the stock market goes up, well, a lot of middle class people own stock indirectly, like through their 401ks or whatnot. So, yeah, it's a crooked system. And this people on Wall Street have designed the tax laws and the gurus tell them, oh, yeah, yeah, just just keep putting your money in and, you know, buy and hold and whatever, and don't try to time the market and rational expectations and that, that, or sorry, uh, efficient markets, that, 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 and so on. Yeah. That's all a racket and designed for you to keep your money locked up in wall street or, but still average Joe's do benefit when the stock market goes up. And I think it's wrong to tell people that, oh yeah, owning assets and things like that's just a rich man's game and you can't play that. No, that's not true. Okay, so I'll stop here. And I think I've demonstrated. So it's the spirit and the letter of this essay have lots of mistakes in it. And this is the area that I knew well. And so I'm just explaining this is why I have yet to be impressed by Curtis Yarvin, even though I do recognize he's a clever guy and you know he has some turns of phrase that are interesting. He certainly read a lot of stuff, but this is why so far I'm not on the mold bug bandwagon so thanks for your attention everyone and i'll see you next time you've just experienced another episode of the bob murphy show the podcast promoting free markets free minds and grateful souls 
For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.